Amen. Thank you, Pastor Andrew. Good morning, Hope Chapel. It is a blessing to be together again this morning, and I just want to reiterate what I um, encouraged last time I preached, the weekend before last, and my heart was just overwhelmed with joy as I stood over here on the, on the side and heard the primary instrument of worship in our gatherings together, and that is your voices. So let's continue to labor to be a singing church, amen? <clears throat> well, I want to welcome you to week three of our Hearts Poured Up series, our summer sojourn through the book of Psalms, and we have a hefty psalm this morning. It's hefty, substantial. It's a little bit long, too. Um, so I just want to invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 22, boot up your apps, etc., and let's just get right into it. Read with me Psalm 22, starting um, at verse 1. <clears throat> my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow, down, shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. 
they shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn, that He has done it. Church, this is the Word of the Lord. Amen? I want to begin with a question this morning. Why? Why? This is perhaps one of the simplest yet infinitely vexing questions that we ask as human beings. It's the question we ask when we plumb the deepest recesses of our human experience. It's the question we turn to when life seems to rend the very fabric of our hearts, when we experience circumstances that are just too much. Overwhelming financial crisis, excruciating physical pain or impairment, mental or emotional anguish, betrayal by a loved one or a trusted friend, loss of employment, the inability to find or sustain a good job, life-threatening illness or the injury of a loved one, divorce or desertion by a spouse or a guardian, especially the death of a spouse, parent, or child. Every night that I have the opportunity to come home from work early enough and put my kids down to bed, I relish the opportunity to spend time just holding them and praying for them, my daughter and my son, Zoe and Zachary. And specifically, I pray to God that they would be born again at an early age, that He would extend to them long life, that it would go well with them in this life. But especially and particularly, I pray that He would protect them from injury or tragedy, that they would not be somehow taken early from Jackie and I, that we would not be unnaturally separated, if you will. And as I was reflecting on this passage and preparing this message this morning, I couldn't help but think that that's probably my greatest, if not one of my greatest fears in this life, and those of you who are parents can undoubtedly sympathize. But when our greatest fears are realized, when our hardest hurts happen in this life, we're compelled to that question, aren't we? Why? Why, God? And this is the question that David agonizingly pours up out of his heart to God in the opening exclamation of Psalm 22. Now, we do not know the specifics of David's circumstances when he authored this particular psalm. We can't infer any details from this passage to try and kind of locate it in a particular season of David's life, but I believe that something very clear and distinct in our human experience bursts forth from the pages of David's writing here in Psalm 22, and that is the overwhelming spiritual and emotional turmoil that we experience as believers as we walk through pain and suffering in this life, fighting the sense that God is distant, disinterested, or disconnected. Amen? And so in David's words, in Psalm 22, we see the painful conflict between his theology and his experience. We see an alternation vacillating between fear and faith. We see a tension between despair and trust, doubt and belief. I've supplied an outline of this passage for you to illustrate this point and to drive it home. And very simply, the structure of Psalm 22 itself reflects our own human experience in that when we go through trials and suffering... As believers, on one hand, we we cry out to God and lament, God, where are you, God? This is what I'm experiencing. This is what I'm feeling. But on the other hand, 
we're compelled to affirm our faith, to affirm our belief, to affirm our trust in Him. Amen? And so goes our human experience. We cry out to God and lament, yet we cry out to Him affirmations of trust. And so in this psalm, we see lament followed by affirmation, followed by more lament, followed by more affirmation, followed up by prayer, followed up by more lament, followed up by prayer, and finally concluding with shouts of praise. And so let's reflect upon our human experience, but let's reflect upon the life of David, most importantly on the life of our Savior Jesus, as we work through this psalm beginning in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. We know that Jesus spoke these opening words at the most climactic moment in his earthly life, didn't he? We know these words from his crucifixion. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is known as Jesus' cry of dereliction. And it was one of seven final sayings that Jesus uttered on the cross. And as I was reflecting on the fact that Jesus uttered this saying as one of his final last words from the cross, I just thought, why? Why this? Why did he quote Psalm 22? Well, it turns out that in Jesus' time, there were no chapter or verse numbers in the Bible. And there was a sense in which it was customary in Jewish culture for a rabbi or religious leader to quote the opening line of a text, or in this instance, a psalm, to kind of invoke that text in its entirety. It was a way of identifying an entire passage. Now, I want us to think for just a moment about the the kind of the historical and the literary context of of this psalm. It's a psalm of lament. Uh, It's perhaps the most passionate lament in, in the whole book of Psalms. And in it, we hear the desperate cry of David crying out to his covenant God, Yahweh. But we also, in this psalm, hear um, a lament that would have been taken hold of by the people of Israel um, after David is, you know, the monarchy crumbled and the northern and southern kingdoms were carried away into exile and the people felt like God was distant. They would have taken hold of this psalm of David and made it their own, the succeeding generations. But... And this is a very important consideration. It is Jesus' echo of verse 1 that lifts Psalm 22 out of the history of ancient Israel and out of the particular situation of David's life and locates it at the very center, the very inflection point of human history. You see, Jesus is not merely quoting verse 1 in an impassioned lament in order to convey kind of the deep uh, physical, emotional, and spiritual, spiritual turmoil that he was experiencing. No, no, this is far more than that. Jesus is saying, this psalm in its entirety is all about me. It is about what I am presently accomplishing as I hang here, suffering on the cross. I am its fulfillment. So this psalm is not only a lament, but it is also a messianic psalm. As the New Testament writers, all four gospel writers at various points in their gospel accounts, in in their narratives, refer back, cite various verses from Psalm 22, Matthew and Mark especially, in the crucifixion scene, directly recounting Jesus, quoting, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so as we read through this psalm together this morning, let us not only read it as the experience of David but also and especially is the experience of our Lord, fully God and also fully man, amen, Amen. who in his passion 
accomplished our redemption. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The urgency of these words just jumps off the page at us. We think about David's situation. He's referring to the covenantal God that he knows personally, Yahweh, who has established a covenant with him. My God, my God, who I have known so closely, who I have walked with and loved and been loved by. My God, so personal, so intimate. Why have you forsaken me? Connoting distance, separation, pain. We think about Jesus. We have no record of Jesus crying out, quoting Scripture when His flesh was flayed by the whip. No words of Jesus when He received the crown of thorns. But here Jesus cries out at the experience of separation from His Father, at the experience of all that it means to be forsaken as the incarnate eternal, divine Son. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? The literal Hebrew here for words of my groaning is my roaring words. The Hebrew conveys more than whining or complaining. It conveys more than even groaning. It conveys a sense of deep-seated distress. Verse 2, O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. By day, by night, this is not a momentary passing suffering. It's not a momentary passing feeling. We know from the gospel accounts that Jesus had been crying out to His Father since Gethsemane. I think that this provokes a question as we reflect upon our own human experience. How do we cling to faith when we feel that God is far from us in our suffering? I think that we see a model in this psalm. We cling to faith by remembering God's character, by remembering His goodness, by remembering His faithfulness in times past. And so we see that the psalm opens up with a cry of lament, a heart poured up to God in pain, but it is followed by a first and initial affirmation of trust in God. How do we cling to God in moments of pain? We remember His faithfulness. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. Look at the threefold repetition of trust. Our fathers trusted you. They trusted, they trusted. And this affirmation of trust is followed up by a parallel threefold repetition of God's faithfulness. You delivered them. They were rescued. They were not put to shame. God, I am hurting, but you have been faithful in the past. And so I will trust you. But this idea of looking to the past to find comfort in the present presents another challenge for us in our human experience. And that is we have this kind of deep-seated awareness as people that the past does not necessarily guarantee the present or the future, right? There was a point in my life when I played basketball at a very competitive level for Redondo High School, went to the CIF Championship my senior year. Um, 
And as I trained every summer to prepare to be a competitive basketball player, I'd go into the gym early every single morning, and one of the things I'd do is I'd just shoot 1,000 free throws. You know, and, and at that time in my life, I could shoot 100 free throws perfectly without missing, you know, no big deal. But then you get into a game situation. I, I, always, I, I love doing sports analogies because, like, all the guys, I can see all the guys that lean forward in their seat. Like, I've got your guys' attention now. But you get into a game situation... Everything's on the line, it's fourth quarter, it's overtime, it's the playoffs, whatever, you know, you're down by two, you got to hit both free throws. And as a player, you think, I've prepared for this, I've hit hundreds of free throws in a row, but there's that little nagging part of you that's like, but that doesn't mean I'll make these ones, right? Because we have an awareness that though we can be confident because of the, fa- the, because of the past, we are still imperfect. We're still prone to error, right? But here's the thing. We fail, but God does not. God does not fail. He is not fallible. He doesn't miss things. David failed, but he could look to the past in confidence because he knew that God does not fail. Indeed, Jesus never failed, but he took our failures upon himself in the very moment that is depicted by this song, which leads David to a second cry of lament. He's lamented. He's affirmed. Now he's, he's vacillating back to anguish to lament. Verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. David's tormentors have attacked him in such a dehumanizing way that his whole world has fallen out from under him. It has collapsed. But Jesus was subjected to more. What David describes metaphorically, Jesus experienced literally. He was subjected to mocking soldiers, mocking priests, mocking crowds, even a mocking criminal as he hang on the cross. They derided him. They wagged their heads at him. The gospel writers tell us that they spoke scornfully to him as he hung helpless on the cross, crushed under the weight of God's wrath, in the sins of men, our sins, crushed under the weight. Verse 8, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Think about David's experience as he penned this psalm. These words must have cut very deep since his his onlookers were mocking the very thing that in his pain and affliction he was laboring to do. They were calling him in derided, scoffing tone and terms to trust in the Lord, but that is exactly what he was trying to do, trying to trust in the Lord. But as Jesus hangs on the cross and is mocked by his onlookers, it's actually the case that he does trust himself fully to his Father, knowing full well that the Father will not in that moment rescue him. And David now turns from a second lament to a second affirmation of trust in the face of this cruel rejection by his peers, by the onlookers. We see another cry of God's faithfulness, verse 9, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. You see, David is saying, you cared for me at my most vulnerable point. You cared for me when I was most dependent. 
And so we see, a, we see lament followed by affirmation where David looks back to God's faithfulness to his forefathers. But we see another lament followed by an affirmation of God's faithfulness where David rehearses God's faithfulness to be with him in his most vulnerable point personally. And this is followed up by a prayer, a simple plea, be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Let's notice what that prayer is not. This is not a prayer to remove the, the pain that has been inflicted by injury. This is not a prayer uh, for deliverance from death. So often when we experience suffering in this life, we just want the pain to go away, right? We just want it to be over with. But consider this prayer. It's not a prayer for the pain to go away. Rather, it's a plea to treat the underlying cause of the suffering. Be not far from me. It's a simple, humble prayer for the removal of divine distance. It's a prayer for the restoration of God's closeness. David asks that God no longer be far away. He understands that he will suffer, he may die, but in the midst of that suffering, he knows that his situation will be made better if God is just close to him. Consider Jesus. For the first time in all of eternity past, having existed in perfect relationship with the Father and the Spirit, he hangs fully human beaten, flayed, nailed to a bloody cross, decorated with His crown of thorns, and missing the closeness of His Father, feeling a sense of separation for the very first time. And most immediate in the desire of His prayer is the longing for that separation to be resolved. My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? but only enemies surround him in that moment. Verse 12, we move to a third and final cry of lament. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. David is using metaphorical imagery, strong animal imagery to depict the presence of overpowering figures. We don't know who those figures were with respect to David and his experience, but we know who those overpowering figures were with respect to Jesus and his. Jesus had the entire Jewish establishment arrayed against him. The people turned against him. Those who cried, Hosanna, a week earlier, had turned against him. And indeed, he had pressed against him the full weight of the Roman Empire as he hung on a cross, enduring the most shameful death of a criminal that could be experienced at that time and in that culture. And what David expresses in kind of poetic hyperbole, in exaggerated terms in verses 14 through 15, is for us a very real and literal picture of Jesus' experience as He bore our sins at the hands of those overpowering figures. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. 
you lay me in the dust of death. Consider the final line of verse 15. It is addressed in the second person to God himself. You lay me in the dust of death. David realizes that the sovereign God is the ultimate cause behind all that he is enduring. On the extreme end, God has brought it about. At the very least, God has allowed it. But it has not escaped God's sovereignty. And hanging on the cross, the son realized that he must be crushed by the father into the dust of death in order to complete his saving work on our behalf. It was for your sin, church, and it was for my sin that Jesus cried out to his father and said, you lay me in the dust of death. It was for our sin that Jesus experienced abandonment, relational isolation from his father, pain, and excruciating death. David goes on, verse 16, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Does this depiction sound familiar? Here, here we perceive an overwhelming feeling, sense of vulnerability. And it's at this point in the movement of Psalm 22 that it draws to conclusion with a final prayer of deliverance. We, we've had a final cry of lament, which leads to a final prayer in verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Come rescue me. Come rescue me are the final words of the servant who suffers on our behalf. One commentator remarked on the first two-thirds of the psalm that depict lament and crying out to God. He remarked this, by combining all these images, the reader is given the impression of the terror of cosmic anarchy brought to bear on one figure, a vision of what happens when evil breaks through the normal restraints of humanity because the restraining, correcting salvation and providence of God are absent. And so the scene in this psalm to this point has been grim. It has been, it's been ghastly. It's been macabre. It has evoked death-like images and, 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 and feelings. But now, now, all of a sudden, in this psalm, there is a radical shift, a pivot, a change, as cries of lament shift, transition, and give way to shouts of praise. The second half of verse 21, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. You've rescued me. This entire psalm pivots on one Hebrew word, anitani, you have answered me. Anitani, you have answered me. God's help appears when all seems lost, doesn't it? Jesus died. 
Jesus was buried. The disciples were scattered. Their hope was threatened. All hope indeed seemed lost. Lost. But, but what happened next? God raised him. The Father answered. And in his resurrection, Jesus emerged victorious over sin and death and all the enemies that encircled him. And now from the perspective of Psalm 22, from, from the point of view of David's experience and from the point of view of Jesus' experience from the cross to the resurrection, the enemies are gone, the conflict is over, and all that is left to do is to praise God and to anticipate the work that He has secured on the basis of the work that was just recounted on the cross. Look at the concentric circles of praise that are identified. Look at the outward progression of praise that David describes starting in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers, to the congregation, to those who fear the Lord, to the offspring of Jacob, to the offspring of Israel. There's a sense in which David is saying that my people will praise Yahweh. They will be reunited to Him in some sense because I've been delivered from this situation. But David doesn't only call to his relatively small racial or ethnic group. He also calls to those who are poor and afflicted. Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. But not just the poor and afflicted, he also calls to the rich. Verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. So now it's not just his people, it's also the poor, it's also the rich in the whole world to the ends of the earth. In fact, all the nations of the earth will praise as a consequence of God's delivering David. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember. All the families of the nations. He rules over the nations. It's not just that David is identifying his people, the rich and the poor, and all the peoples of the earth, every chunk, tribe, and nation. He's going to move to include peoples from every generation, people from the future. Verse 30, posterity shall serve him, the coming generation, a people yet unborn. David's words seem a little bit ambitious to me. Like, does he expect that as a consequence of his deliverance from whatever situation he was in, the particulars of which we really don't know anything about, but from which he cries out in pen Psalm 20, does he really expect that from his deliverance that like all the peoples of the earth over all time, future generations will somehow be delivered and experience salvation? That seems a little bit ambitious for one guy, right? That's not God. <clears throat> I think the solution to kind of this, this problem, this enigma in Psalm 22 um, lies in Acts chapter 2 in the New Testament where Peter, preaching his first sermon uh, after Pentecost, refers back to the book of Psalms and to David specifically and said that David cried out as a prophet. And so I submit to you in Psalm 22 as a prophet, David cried out and in his his momentary suffering, he foresaw a greater David, whose greater suffering and greater abandonment by God would lead to a salvation for every tongue, tribe, and nation. Jesus, uh, David prophetically saw a picture of a greater David. And so while these words seem ambitious for David, and even ambitious for Israel as they clung to this psalm during specific periods of their history, they are not too ambitious for Jesus. 
truly of Jesus, we can say, church, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. To a people yet unborn. We are that people. We are that people. And now we proclaim to the future generations that we live with that He has done it. His final words on the cross were, it is finished. It is secured. The work is done. Our deliverance from sin and death has been secured. I want to circle back to the question that we opened with this morning as we draw our time together to conclusion. Why? Why our hearts cry out? David cried out, why? Even Jesus cried out, why? The truth is, God does not physically appear to us and answer that question directly when we experience suffering in this life, does He? But I submit to you that there are two questions that are immediately related to the question, why? You see, the question why refers back to an event in the past that is affecting us in the present. But the related questions to that first question are this, will what I'm suffering be resolved and does God care? Three questions, but I propose that if we were to receive answers to only two of the three questions, we would want answers to the, to the last two of those three questions. We would want to know in the future whether our suffering will be resolved. We would want to know in the present, is God near, does He care? In Psalm 22, we see clear answers to these two questions. We see that God is faithful. He will ultimately resolve all of our pain and suffering because through Jesus on the cross, who took our suffering and took our sin, the cause of all of it has been resolved, sin. And because He has resolved sin, He says, behold, I am making all things new. Because He has resolved sin and that in repentance and faith we can receive forgiveness of sin, He says, I will wipe away every tear from your eye. Death will be no more. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more crying. There will not be pain anymore. Because He's resolved our sin, we can cast our cares upon Him because the Scriptures say He does care for us. Which answers that third and final question. Does God care? Absolutely. God cares about us in our suffering. Verse 24 says that he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. In fact, church, there is a sense in which Jesus' cry from the cross was an identification with any of us who has ever felt like roaring to God out of our pain and suffering. In Jesus, we not only meet the God who cares about our suffering, we meet the God who has suffered himself. But it's not just that he has suffered is, it is that He has suffered for us. He has suffered on our behalf for you and for me. 
He purchased our hope with his suffering on the cross. And our response, brothers and sisters, is simply on the basis of his work to repent of our sin and to believe in him. I want to invite the worship team up. We can take the lights down. I want to leave you with these five closing considerations as we draw our time together to conclusion. When you need forgiveness, trust in Jesus. When you are suffering, trust in Jesus. When you are hurting, trust in Jesus. When you are broken, trust in Jesus. When you are alone, trust in Jesus. And remember that you are not alone. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you to bow your heads and to pray with me and to prepare your hearts. Let's prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table with a posture of humility in response to what God has revealed in His Word, His good, pleasing, and perfect Word. Let us approach this time of remembrance and repentance and faith. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it humbles us that it lifts you up, that it reveals the tremendous separation from you that we experience in this life that can only be reconciled through the work of your Son. Jesus, we thank you that on the cross you completed the atoning work on our behalf and that you cried out, it is finished. And so we remember you in this moment. We remember the work that you completed on our behalf. Be glorified in and through us in this time. And we pray these things in the precious, mighty, majestic, holy, unparalleled name that is above all names, your name, Jesus. Amen. Church, come forward and receive the elements.